The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here on WDWS. Well, it's not just me. Lately, it's been Dr. Fred Gertz and Paul Rudy on Paul Rudy's On the Money Show. Dr. Right. Fred, good to yeah. see you. Good to be here with you again. We'll here's wait this. for the other people. Yeah, that's right. I'm, you know, I was whining to my wife. I'll give the phone numbers and all that out in a minute. But <laughs> I, mean, I was just grouchy today. I, go, <laughs> I think it's time for me to bring those boys back. <laughs> reason they're not here lately is uh, I think I announced, well, a number of shows ago, David's baby's four months old now, roughly. And so David and his wife Amber trying to be careful and not be about people. You know why their little one is in that very small stage. And now my daughter Katie and her husband Ryan, who works with us and on the show typically, uh, they just had a little baby boy, Will, last Monday. So just a little over a week ago. And so that's why it's the Dr. Fred yeah. and Paul show. We're on the cutting edge now with family leave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Do I get an option, Fred? Uh, so I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. As I said, you can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting with your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Yeah, four boys now, grandchildren. Right. Does that make okay. me old, Fred? <laughs> I assume you have some grandchildren. Two. Two. And, uh, you know, I'm writing my newsletter, Fred, and I'm I'm kind of writing it. I'm not really an emotional type person, you know, but I found myself writing about, at least I think I'm going to include it, um, kind of about how that transition, once you have grandchildren, how, at least for me, uh, I'll be interested to see if my clients kind of, if it, you know, kind of hits what they're thinking or, you know, or if they identify with it. But, you know, it seems like for most of the last 10 or 15 years, you know, once my kids were grown up, college on their own, you know, it's your, it's your peak earning years typically and you're saving a lot of money, which I've been doing, my wife and I. And, you know, it's, on the front end of that, it was more about, hey, we're doing this to take care of us. And suddenly, you know, you think I got these four grandchildren, you start thinking about their futures and what they might hope to accomplish. And it, it's kind of shifted the way I think about wealth. Um, it's not kind of that single purpose anymore. It's about how can a grandparent, if they're fortunate enough, you know, play a role in their grandchildren's lives financially. But at the same time, here's what I'm wrestling with. And I'd be interested to see what your views on that, uh, if you have them. It's, I don't, you know, I want to keep them on their own two legs, whether it's my children or grandchildren. And I see my clients struggle with this, you know, how do you, and of course I've had to give advice for the last 38 years on this topic. Now I have to dispense it to myself, which is always the hardest part is how do you balance, you know, making sure that they're still incentivized to work and to do these things, but at the same time help. Uh, Is that ever creep into your brain at all? Sure. But I think uh we're probably in a situation where we don't have to worry about we're not Rockefellers where we're going to oh for sure <laughs> that they'll, they'll either have to work or live on a pretty modest <laughs> inheritance so again there's there's strong incentives there and assuming they um, you know go to college have skills and things of that sort I don't think it's going to 
blended a great deal. There's a obviously a concern is that uh, you can't control how the money is spent uh, right. 30 or 40 years from now. So there's kind of a trust either with your children or your grandchildren that will be used wisely, but there's no way you can necessarily constrain it to avoid um, you know, uh, negative kind of situations. It strikes me that unless kind of as a family unit, you know, handing it down from one generation, in other words, going from transgenerational to multi-generational wealth. And I have a number of clients that have been the beneficiaries of multi-generational wealth and they're darn making they're going to make darn sure to the best they can right right uh that that's instilled in their children and then hopefully their grandchildren and maybe children they'll never meet and i, I think outside of that almost being a family cultural dynamic right. uh it can it can stop within one generation right. i've seen that happen also it's very difficult to constrain people in the future you can have all kinds of complicated trusts and Things of that sort, but uh, you, you can't really foresee every possible emergency or, or uh, unusual situation in the future. So you have to have a, a good de- degree of trust and hope that it's used wisely. I think so. And, of course, there are estate planning techniques that people try to use to try to enforce certain issues, which you can do to some degree. Uh, but, 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 again, it's, it's – maybe it's because I'm getting older and crankier. Um, I'm starting also to see wealth as security. Um, I mean, maybe it's because all of us in this town are a little shell shocked to some degree. You know, when you hear of basically shootings every night, or not that somebody's shot every night, but I listen to I have this weird habit, you know, about I listen to a police scanner. That's my white noise throughout <laughs> the night, and I don't think there's a night that goes by. I could be wrong on this, but it seemingly it seems like there's shots every night, and and so maybe that's what's forcing me a little bit more to this view, also that you know keep working, keep accumulating for my children and grandchildren because it's a sense of not only financial security, but maybe even physical security that, you know, might be more necessary. That's probably paranoid. That's probably, yeah. I'm usually an optimist. <laughs> In fact, I'm called an incurable optimist, but that, that's the one area that worries me a little bit right now when yeah. I see crime really taking off. Well, also uh, what you talked about earlier, <clears throat> the, the, the 10 or 20 years of, of your uh uh, so-called freedom allows you to do things now you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So you, you can talk about your grandchildren and worry about their For future sure. that you wouldn't be able to. The other thing, which uh, it's not exactly crime, but it's, uh, you know, uh, many people aren't particularly happy about the direction the country is going. But at least uh, if you have your own assets, you have a certain degree of protection against it. You can't protect the country, but you can protect yourself against uh, some negative kind of outcomes that may come about it sure seems that and one of the things i want to talk about today are inflation because that seems to be front and center of every financial uh news show um it's just you know and, and i mentioned this to my wife this morning i go you know unfortunately it doesn't really impact people like you and me because we have enough money and you know i've worked hard and i'm not rockefeller as you said but you know we have enough to where whether uh, you know beef is a steak is ten dollars a pound or 15 doesn't really impact my world much but you know $3.25 gas versus $2.25 gas, beef prices and energy prices and all these things going up. And I'm not an alarmist on this. I, I, I think it, I still believe it's somewhat transitory. We can talk more about that. But it sure seems to me like the people that supposedly weren't going to get taxed are indeed paying a tax. And in the way I see it, two ways. One, and just prices. It's clear that for a lot of the things, I heard a commentator on the news, a politician, suggesting that well it's only three areas it's only beef 
chicken and poultry. And okay. Like, yeah, that's the things you want to eat. You know, if you yeah. want protein for Plus, the most part, uh, uh, energy, energy, natural gas prices, things of that sort. So it seemed like two years ago we were we had so much natural gas that we were exporting it, and yeah. natural gas was very inexpensive. We had so much oil that we were net exporters. How quickly things have changed in that regard. I haven't fo- I haven't figured out the whys and the wherefores. But it's certainly a sudden and dramatic change. Well, I think the uh, natural gas is not quite the same as oil in terms of international uh, movement. So I, I doubt there's going to be a big spike in natural gas prices in the United States. There probably will be in, in Europe. Yeah, but Europe's again, been hit really yeah. hard. I think I saw a six, in Britain six-fold increase in natural gas prices. Yeah. But it's strange to – I mean, so I heard someone talking, like, in, in the modern world, it's strange to be worried about uh, uh, is the power grid good enough to – provide energy or do we do we have enough uh, you know natural gas or oil when we have plenty available in the in the ground so it's it's kind of a it seems to be kind of a transitory uh either uh, bad rules or unusual situations that uh, they should work themselves out but you never know and it's still somewhat due to the fact that a year ago if we see a year over year numbers we were still had kind of depressed values on a lot of prices right. but still at $80 a barrel oil uh you know, get your attention. Um, we don't, you know, we don't see yeah. that number a lot, though we've seen higher. Yeah, but also, uh, you don't have to worry about this very much, but uh, if you're concerned about environmental investing, what's called ESG, uh, you know, every few months it's uh, divest of oil and natural gas. Right. And then, because it's going to be bad, and then it turns out to be good instead of bad, and or invest in uh, alternative energy, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. So the, the rule is that there's no magic formula, even though we'll probably be using right. a lot more uh, um, non-carbon-based fuels 20 or 30 years from now. That doesn't mean you can invest in a certain way and make money on that. Right. It's kind of like everything that's known about it's known with all the overlapping minds. I think all too often people see something and they think, wow, that's a powerful trend uh, or a powerful company, what they're selling, I'm going to invest in it. And yeah. uh, you know, usually it just doesn't. Yeah, know, well, everybody like, else knows that too. Yeah, in nineteen, well, in nineteen ten or nineteen five, uh, someone had said, you know, the next forty years is going to be a huge expansion of the automobile industry. You go out and buy an automobile stock, and probably nine nine tenths of those went, <laughs> went away. Went, went away. Yeah, and speaking of inflation, last year uh, Social Security recipients got a one point three percent cost of living increase. Uh, looks like the guess is what everybody's the experts are projecting. It might be at least six percent, driven by uh, the rise in consumer prices. Um, but then I've read where that probably doesn't really begin to. Well, it begins to. It doesn't fully address the actual impact of inflation. Well, I don't know. It, we we talk about this all the time. In, in the long run, it probably overreacts. In the, in the short run, it may not. But there. All kinds of, of uh, quality improvements and things of that sort that don't get captured. So, you know, buying a car now is not the same as buying a car. So I read years ago. Yeah, exactly. So that's the adjustment for quality. Right. That's the other thing I think about inflation. I don't know that my wife understood with my brain how it was <laughs> thinking. I said, you know, there is this other inflation side to me when it takes me an extra 10 or 15 minutes to get a fast food order or yeah. the, the restaurant take, and, th- and God love them. I mean, I'm not blaming them. I mean, they're doing the best they can. Uh, but when service declines or, the, or, or you stay in a hotel and they're not cleaning it every day, maybe they don't need to anyway. But, but the point is, to me, that's another source of inflation. Right. That kind of when people are wasting my, when my time is, I feel like it's being wasted. They, they're sure. not doing it purposefully. Uh, 
I think that's another form of inflation. That's kind of like these things. It's the opposite side of it. Yeah. Quality is quality diminution. And and I think that's a form of inflation at the same time. Um, So, well, the Senior Citizens League, a nonpartisan advocacy group, uh, they sent both the House of Representatives and the Senate (coughs) and the group ramping up its calls for $1,400 stimulus checks to be sent at once to Social Security beneficiaries. So. Well, I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but they're they're calling for it. They're nonpartisan, but they're certainly have an agenda. You're politically nonpartisan, but they certainly have an agenda, and and who knows about that? Um, Fred, you know, you've been on this show now for years, and I don't even know where you grew up. I know this seems a weird you, question, you, but I think other people would like to kind of yeah, know a little bit about your uh, background. Wichita, Kansas. I lived in Wichita from uh, uh, the time I was three years old until I left to go to graduate school. So. I, uh, and where did you go to undergrad? Wichita that, State. It was Wichita University when I was there. It's okay. now Wichita State. So even in those days, we were a, a basketball power. And the uh, Missouri Valley Conference was really a, a big deal back in those days. So. Uh, and then you did your graduate? At Northwestern. Northwestern. And then Ph.D.? At, when, uh, at, at Northwestern. Kind of a, was that yeah. kind of a rolled-up program? Yeah. And then I uh, went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, for 12 years and then came here in 19. 19- 80, and Don and I have been here since uh, over 40 years now. In the economics department? Yeah, and Institute of Government, Public Affairs, and Economics, uh, Public and, Policy. And you uh, you handle what people hear on the radio periodically about the flash index? Yeah, it's a measure of uh, economic activity in the state of Illinois, and, and the uh, rationale for it is that uh, people would like to know how things are going now. And if you wait for census data, uh, how the uh, – uh, state product is doing or something of that sort. You're, you're talking about three or six months delay. So the flash index depends upon um, revenues that come into the state. So if you're trying to measure uh, how businesses are doing, uh, corporate profits, the corporate income tax is a kind of backdoor way of doing that. And retail sales tax is a way of looking at consumer purchases. And the income tax is obviously a way of looking at people's income. So it's imperfect, but it's a, a quick way of getting information about the state. Over the last 40 years, and you don't even have to answer this, have you noticed uh, over that 40-year period the academia changing, uh, getting more political, less political, more biased one way or another? Or Well, I think it's uh, it's different, and uh, obviously it changed. So I think that uh, if you look at Democrats versus Republicans, that the um, – uh, Academia has always been uh, heavily um, democratic, and especially the more you go into the uh, non-science and non-business disciplines. So if you look at engineering and business, there's it's probably a good number of, of uh, non-democrats. But if you look at most of the other areas, it's the opposite. But I think in terms of the not just Democrat-Republican, in terms of the uh, kind of views, there's much more uh, uh, in terms of progressive views now than it was how about the student body of you over those years? Has there been a substantial change? Or? I, I, we don't know because it's hard. Obviously, uh, most students, uh, their goal is to come here and get an education and go out and live a, a good life. Right. So they're not particularly concerned about uh, the, the mascot or sure. uh, or all, all the things that uh, are, are very visible here. So most of those people you probably never hear from, and the ones you do hear from are people – who uh, are very concerned about certain kind of issues. So I don't, I don't really have a good feeling about the total now. But, but the point is that the people who are willing to be active can make a very big uh, uh, impact. And so uh, obviously people are, are careful now in a variety of ways about what they say, what they do. Oh, for and, sure. And, you, know, I, you know, a lot of the things I think are funny to some people aren't funny at all. Yeah, but I mean, it's not just that John Gruden 
kind of funny. It's uh, even what, what most people would think of as pretty innocuous sort of things can be uh, challenging to some people. Yeah. And so if someone gets an undergraduate degree in economics, is there any tendency to go into one, like a certain, end up in a certain area of the business world? Well, I think probably finance would be the most likely one. Uh, again, <clears throat> in the old days, back you know, several decades ago, uh, I think the goal of a lot of economics departments was to find really talented students and then uh, give them a lot of, uh, not specialized, but a lot of uh, care and, and encourage them to go into economics to become economists. That's pretty unusual now. Economics is a world worldwide uh, profession now. So if you look at people coming out of graduate schools in the United States, uh, a majority of those people are not from the United States. They're from all around the world. So it's really a a, a very challenging kind of area to operate in because you're, you're competing against the best people, not just in the United States, but against in the whole world. So as a consequence, a relatively few people go to graduate school to become PhD economists, but lots of people want to get an MBA and go into finance or um, okay. whatever. And then there are other routes. I mean, I, I don't think, for example, uh, if someone came to work for you uh, with a degree in economics, they could probably learn everything they need to know without getting a, right. a master's in finance. But there are other some people do that or, or do that in addition just to uh, credential themselves in that way. Yeah. And, and, but then, but then beyond that, everything is open. Law school, uh, going into business in kind of a general way, whatever you, you want to do. Yeah, I was only I think I was two classes from an economics minor. Right. Uh, I always liked economics <laughs> for some reason. A lot of people that was there, they hated it, yeah. you know. And at some schools, it's kind of a, known as a flunk out area. What well, depends where it can be really on really challenging well, for people at, at Northwestern. Uh, economics is a popular major because they haven't had an undergraduate business degree, so the closest you can come to uh, business is an economics degree. And at the University of Illinois, uh, there are, are different admission rules with different colleges, and uh, engineering and, and the business school are the most challenging to get into, so sometimes students will take economics as the next best thing to the uh, to a business degree. So we, we have lots of students who want to be uh, in business who, who are in, e in economics. That's good. Well, good to let people know since you've been, I, mean, yeah. I, I can't even count the years you've been helping us on the show, and we really never talked a little bit about your background, so yeah. I thought, you know, might as well get into a little yeah, bit. Yeah, one other thing, I, I guess sure. uh, I'm an economist, but I, I really didn't study or didn't know a whole lot about financial markets until the last 20 or 30 years. And my, my own finance, financial uh, dealings and being on the search board has gotten me into uh, pretty deeply into finance. And I think the way we uh, ended up together, we, we were just talking at an airport one time about, yeah. uh, and our philosophies turned out to be very similar. And so, again, I, you didn't convince me or I didn't convince you, but we were at the right, same right. place. <laughs> Yeah, Fred, you know, I, you brought the uh, intelligence factor of the show way up. You're listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. You can reach us at 217-356-9397. Hey, I have a question for the listeners if anybody wants to to opine on this. I was, I've was i been thinking of questions uh, for people to think about and maybe provide some uh, kind of response to it if they'd be willing to call. And my my thought was, what because I mainly deal with retired folks, and I've always wanted to ask this question. I've never asked anybody this, but what is it you wish you knew before retirement once you were in retirement? What do you wish you knew before you retired when you retired? And if anybody wants to call 356-9397, I'd be interested in people's stories and people's thoughts about that because I think it might 
uh, you know, shed some light on what people contemplating retirement might want to think about. I, yeah, thought, another, I have my theories. Another but. question might be, uh, uh, did I retire too early or should I work, should I work longer? Should I be retired uh, yeah. previous to Yeah, so anything uh, related to that, um, you know, as it relates to retirement, if you want to call in, 356-9397, we appreciate uh, your call and your thoughts on that, more importantly. Uh, well, let's see, open enrollment for Medicare. Now, this is kind of blocking and tackling stuff, but, you know, it's, it's a big deal. So, you know, since it's that time of year, I at least wanted to bring it to people's attention. It starts October 15th and runs through December 7th. That's when you can make changes that take effect January 1st. Um, it's probably worth at least, maybe not every year, but maybe every year, checking to make sure that you your plan is doing what yeah. you think it is. But yeah. I, I suspect, though, uh, I, you know, I pride myself in being able to deal with financial issues, but uh, I get the book from uh, the government about the options, yep. and it's totally uh, incomprehensible. To uh, me. I, I agree. I've, you know, when I was educating myself on this, I was creating a mind map of all the different things, and you know, it was so circuitous, and it was, it, you know, and well, I, and I'm reasonably good with numbers, and well, there's there are all kinds of things where there it's like a tax law. There are lots of uh, things you can't really tell just by reading the reading the uh, the coverage, whether it you know, works or not. So you really need to talk to someone who knows. And there's some oops factors we can yeah. talk about, too. But first, we're going to go to Cliff. Cliff, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I had a comment you'd asked, uh, what do you wish you knew before retiring that you perhaps figured out after retired? Yes, sir. I had a comment for you. Please. And that was... Uh, the thing I wish I knew, or perhaps I knew it, but didn't really fully comprehend it, was the, the value of compounding over time. When you're 60, you realize, man, when I was 20, 30, I should have put a little more in while I had that time on my side. And I think sometimes even these young adults kind of, quote unquote, know that. They don't fully comprehend it and take advantage of it. That's one piece of advice I would give to young investors or just young employees, working folks. This time is of more value than you really understand when you have that time on your side as a young working adult. Right, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, I don't, I'm not sure we, we, the term, I guess we use the magic of compounding. And again, it works all the time, but it works really well if you do it early and have a, a, a lot of time to uh, let things grow. And I, I, I've talked about these, these examples many, many times, but uh, I'll look back in my financial statements and say why well, I, I contributed uh, uh, X amount and now it's worth 10 times that amount. Wasn't it a great investment? Well, the answer is no, it was an all right investment and you just uh, grew it six or seven percent over a very long period of time. You ended up five or tenfold. I think that's the key. And Cliff, you might agree. People put so much focus on buying the right stock or the right stock mutual fund, for example. And for young people, that's kind of where I would want to be. And they think they have to earn this really powerful return. Really, all they have to do is earn a return that they can stay in and not interrupt the compounding. Right. That's think, correct. And don't get, don't get so caught up in the day-to-day -day ups and downs as just the fact that leave it alone over time and you'll vast majority of the time you'll come out great but we Cliff, early. we we say that to the 25 year olds or the 22 or the 26 year olds and they look at you somewhat with a blank stare and i've, I've often wondered is it the messaging or do we need to create uh, figure out a way that's going to resonate with their brain instantly where it becomes compelling as opposed to well nice theory but you know i got starbucks coffee to yeah. buy and i you know i got an apartment to pay for 
I mean, I, so I'm, what I'm saying is I've been doing this for 38 years and I haven't seen that get any better. And I'm just wondering oh, okay. if it's the messaging. Well, what, what could I have told you at 25 years old that would have caused you to do that and behave differently? Sorry, I'm outside and the train just went by. Oh, that's uh, I don't know if there's anything you could have told the 25-year-old Cliff. At the time, I, I had Starbucks coffee to buy, and I didn't know any better. And so I don't know if there's a quick and easy answer to this, but it's just a comment I would make and, and urge the younger folks to really think it through, the power of this uh, value over time. Well, we appreciate your feedback. I, you know, but It's certainly true, though. That help. It may not Thanks, save Cliff. a lot, but you want to get above water, at least, if you're in debt. I mean, it's clearer that you want to... Uh, stop that right away for sure so you probably you know want to really manage that debt at first and so many people walk out of yeah. school with with some probably more or debt. not even that not the college debt's a little different but just the if your cash flow is negative, oh okay so you're yeah okay so that, your deficit when, spending that's when you personally wanna, that's when you want to give up your starbucks and your yeah i once created an app and i and i'm still tempted if i could find somebody to actually design it that's where i'm weak it's kind of it was my theory that if young people knew that that seven dollar cup of coffee that they're spending five days a week uh and if it's a couple it's fourteen dollars a day for a week what that would actually likely compound to in real dollars to recognize that wow that habit is costing you two thousand a month in retirement yeah or eighty dollars at baskins yeah <laughs> yeah so you know what i mean if, yeah. there, maybe there's a way that when you tell somebody about compounding Basically, their heads explode. Once we get anything that's geometrical yeah. in math, their heads explode. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the, the problem, that there's not this. There was a book called Eat This, Not That, and I, and I want to create an app called Spend This, Not That, and, and do it in a visual way where they, they can actually price out in today's dollar what that means to them at age 60. And then I think there's a chance that it might have more impact for more people, but I'm not even yeah. certain of that. Uh, thanks, Cliff, for uh, uh, sharing your thoughts on that. Again, Cliff shared his thoughts on what what do I wish I knew before retirement that uh, before I got into retirement. Yeah. And as, as Fred said, uh, what were you adding to that? Just kind of. Yeah, just the general. And again, uh, and it, it works even in my situation. Uh, um, I started in a decade where there was not, not much happening, uh, 70 to 80 uh, um, basically zero returns right and, and and yet it still worked over the long run what kept you what kept you doing that because you were seeing articles at the time where you could make more money in treasury bills than stocks well i, I don't think i ever thought about it very much it was just a habit of spending but even there was no place to hide though if you look, look at the late 70s uh you're you're a, uh get a cd of 11 12 percent you have 10 percent inflation and 30 percent marginal tax rate you're still uh Below water after the after the whole thing is over. I think that's the one thing about fixed income. There's you know, when you have clients and you're managing their life financially, and they have thirty or forty percent or fifty percent of their portfolio in short term high quality bonds that are somewhat at epic low interest rates, uh, there tends to be a lot more focus on that asset class, and the focus is really why do we own any of it or at least so much of it. And I've always tried to explain to people that fixed income never really makes you money, net of taxes and inflation. And you mentioned the 70s and or early 80s, you could get a 16% CD, but you might have had a 30 or 40% marginal tax bracket. It wasn't unusual then. And by the time you did, looked at, so you lop off 4 or 5% for inflation, 
and now you lop off 13%, I mean, for taxes, and then another 12 or 13% for taxes, high-quality fixed income, and that's the only kind of fixed income I like to, to own, is never really about creating wealth. It's more about maintaining wealth. If you, if you don't spend it, you can kind of tread water net of inflation. So if the typical retiree at 62 or 65 or 60, they're going to walk in, if they walk into our, our family company, um, even if that person could tolerate a 70 or 80 or 90% stock portfolio, generally, and I'm, I'm broad brushing here, generally what we find is there's really no advantage to them other than leaving the kids maybe a lot more money or maybe some potential lifestyle. That's a may or may not mm -hmm. be there. Uh, but there's certainly no increased spending today for an 80% stock portfolio versus a 50 or 60% stock portfolio. But there's so much focus that, you know, I constantly have to remind people that, look, you have bonds because you want to sleep at night. You have stocks because you want to eat. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really the ownership of the great companies of America and the world that are going to do, hopefully, the heavy lifting and provide all the return right. net of taxes and inflation. Bonds are there, so partially because, first of all, most people don't need to be 100% in stocks yeah. because, yeah, they have a higher expected return, but it's a return they're not going to need or, you know, not going to need. And so to do that, when you could be at a 50 or 60% stock portfolio and have the same goals funded confidently, I look at that as risking what you have a need for what you don't have and don't need. So yeah. that's one reason. But the other, Fred, and then, and then I'll shut up. Uh, the other reason most of our clients have 30, 40, 50% in bonds is sometimes the stock portion, portion can act up ter terribly and uh, really disappoint you over a period, temporary period of time. And it's having that stable bond position and it's that stability that I think allows people to keep their heads and stay sane. Yeah. And the other thing we, we talked about uh, before the show was that there's no rule that says you have to live off your interest and dividends. Uh, right. If you invest in, in stocks over your life, you're going to have huge gains there. And it's certainly uh, reasonable to, to harvest some of those. I, I was have been, been involved in a foundation, and the foundation's rule was to use as operating expenses interest and dividends – and there's not much and compared right. and the, the, leaving the uh, the uh, capital basically untapped. But if you have fifty or one hundred percent increase over a few years, uh, it makes sense to not just to limit yourself to the the cash flow, but to uh, get into the, the capital as well. And I and I've always seen retiree situations very similar to a foundation or a pension fund. It's either properly funded or it's underfunded. Yeah. Uh, and and I've always viewed it as don't focus so much on which asset classes are earning what it's the total return of the portfolio so we've always kind of followed that approach fred is you know we just look at the portfolio return as a whole and retirees are going to start out spending somewhere between four and five yeah. percent of that uh as a starting point uh which is reasonably conservative as a starting point and then look to make adjustments as things work out even halfway favorably you're probably going to get you know, some significant spending increases. Yeah. The other thing, too, which maybe will encourage people, if you start early, there's no reason you have to <clears throat> have to be an automatic pilot until you reach 65. You may, right. get, you may get to 50 and find out you're in really good shape and you can do some things that you probably didn't expect to be able to do at 50 years of age because you have saved in the past. So it's not – there's no rule that says every dollar you save when you're 20 has to be 
uh, expanded when you're 65. Right. So in, in reality, because of the power of compounding, if somebody started really young out of the gate, a reasonable savings plan, 5 to 10% of their, their earnings on a year, by the time they reach 50, they're, they've probably won the game. They probably can, for most people, I would suffice to say, if you have the right allocation, you've been predominantly investing in the stock market over those 20, 30, 40 years, um, you're probably going to be at a, a critical mass that you really can either alter your allocation and really calm it down or cut your savings substantially and then enjoy your 50s more between 50 and 60. Um, in fact, I have one son. I won't mention his name, David. Uh, he tells me that he's on track if he wanted to to retire at 40. Yeah. Now, he's been a massive saver since he got his first paycheck. And I think most of my kids, if not all of them, are kind of following that same kind of methodology, save first yeah. uh, and spend later. And, you know, and he's not, he, I wouldn't say he's putting a bizarre amount of money away, but he just started so early. Yeah. Now David's, I think, 32-ish. Sorry, Dave, if I got your age wrong. Four kids, I sometimes forget. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that really got my attention. Yeah, you could start a family trust. And <laughs> yeah, yeah and, 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 I, and frankly, I, I think my other children are nipping at his heels. Yeah. Um, so that was just an up. I'm seeing reality in it in my face with my children. I'm thinking, wow, I was nowhere. Fred, I was nowhere near. I think when I was 32, I was just struggling even though I was in this business, but I was just trying to figure out a way to make a living and build a company. Yeah. Well, again, uh, uh, we talked about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett wasn't the world's richest, one of the world's richest people when he was 65. <laughs> he had two things happening. He had a good start, and then he lived for a long time and really took off. Yeah, I think I read somewhere where like 90% of his fortune that he has has come since age 65 or 70. Yeah. In other words, that's that compounding Cliff was talking about that still keeps working even if you, you know, yeah. if you were to start saving very early and then really shut it down uh, quite a bit by your 50, it's, yeah. compounding doesn't stop. It's just saying, hey, I don't need any more fuel to the fire. I'm, I've, I've done all the heavy lifting. Yeah. And there, we're talking about this in, in a very uh, broad brush. So, I mean, there are obviously tax issues and things of that sort if someone's going to retire at 50. Of course. Yeah. Uh, very broad brush. I'm just saying, you know, could you get to critical mass at age 50? I could design a plan for that I don't think would be overly burdensome for any 22, 24, 25-year-old if they would just opt that, you know, stick to that plan probably by, probably, it's never a lock, by age 50, you're going to have a lot of options that 50-year-olds could never think of. And uh, I think we're getting another call here, and uh, we'll take that in a second. So I think I know this is big broad brush stuff, Fred, but sometimes I'd like to get into the broad brush stuff. Uh, people can only handle so much of, you know, alphas and standard deviations and all the uh, technical things. I think Ron might be – Ron, are you there? Oh, I think – let's see if Ron's there. Ron, welcome to Paul Ruiz on the Money. How are you? Just fine. Yes, sir. I, I would tell people – Start an exercise program and never stop it. And maybe on a bigger scale, think about what, well, how dementia may affect you or your family. Okay. Now, now, what uh, is? Did, have you had experience with dementia? Is that what kind of makes you say that, or just just naturally? That's just one of the risks that are out there that people need to think about. I just know that it's a risk that basically no most people don't even consider. And I think that's a good one, Fred. The first one, start an exercise. I hope my wife's not listening. 
Uh, start an exer right, exercise. Thanks, All right, thank you. Start an exercise program that you can stick with. Uh, you seem to stay in shape. Uh, is that something you've maintained? Or well, I, more more recently, I used to just do things, play tennis and play basketball and things, and now I do non non fun things like uh, I'm not 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 take my dog for a walk is fine. Sure, but, sure. But th those kind of things, right? It's not, and I go to the gym for. 20, 30 minutes every other day. And so it's not, I'm not uh, uh, going to be a triathlete or something. But, uh, and, but the, I think a broader issue is not just exercise, but your overall health situation is easier. I mean, uh, uh, Don and I were talking about someone who decided to stop smoking at 60. Well, that's probably a good idea, but it would be a lot better idea to, to not, do it. Either not start or, or, start or stop at 40 or yeah, 50 or Right. So I, so I add to the exercise just a general concern about uh, health. And, again, uh, you can't. There's no sure thing, just like investments don't always pay off. Uh, exercise and a good lifestyle doesn't always pay off, but it's uh, obviously better than the alternatives, alternatives in most cases. But I don't think a lot of people think, even I don't, you know, at, when Ron said that, it's kind of like, wow, that's so obvious, but how did I miss that? Yeah. Uh, I never talk about that, and it's certainly part of, you know, we have our health care and we have our wealth care, and, and, uh -huh. and wealth care is probably not, that, you know, it's you see people that have all the money in the world, but they really can't hardly move about. Uh, it may or may not be their fault. I mean, it yeah. might have been a genetic issue, but certainly probably an area that every bit as much work on as the financial side. And it's also an area of, uh, we, we talk about the economy growing, and yeah. usually we talk about how much more money you have. But the, the most important uh, um, things in the economy have been increases in longevity. And so you have... Uh, some of them are, are lifestyle kind of things. Others are medical interventions. So you have things like statins that can deal with uh, cholesterol. Uh, cataracts can uh, improve your eyesight. My grandmother couldn't see because of that. Uh, my grandfather was uh, crippled because he didn't have a, a hip replacement. And so there are all kinds of things like that that can keep us going. And so, again, some of those are, are overt kind of interventions, but a lot of things are just continual where you have to uh, keep up on when did the increase in when did we really start noticing the increase in life expectancy historically? Well, there, there, it, it, the story isn't you know curing cancer or curing heart disease. It's public health by and large. Uh, the, the, the big increase occurred when we had sanitation got got rid of uh, a lot of diseases that were spread through uh, sanitation, mosquitoes lifestyle th uh, kind of things like that so uh is that early that, you know, early, like early 20th century okay that's and it. again if uh tuberculosis used to be a big deal uh there are sanitariums for people who had tuberculosis yeah. and so on uh no one's ever found a cure for tuberculosis but very few people get it nowadays because of the change in lifestyle so and and so and oh, the other thing which i i didn't mention is uh infant mortality there's been a huge uh, reduction in uh, infant mortality. So uh, young young kids are uh, living uh, much much uh, getting, long uh, enough to survive. Yeah, and and then the common and then these kind of public health uh, uh, inoculation for disease, uh, sanitation, things of that sort. But then more recently, it's been more the intervention. Uh, the uh, decrease in heart disease probably is uh, because of uh, various things like statins and things of that sort. Yeah. And uh, uh, people's uh, smoking cessation has been very important in terms of uh, lung cancer. So the, the more recent things have been 
more uh, kind of targeted as opposed to the, the ones in the uh, you know, 100 years ago or so. It sure seems like since the advent of capitalism, we've really, this war on poverty, I mean, the, the global decline in poverty yeah. from, I don't know, way beyond 50% to now, I guess, about one out of 10 people yeah. in the globe. You know, it's conceivable that 20 years from now, that that may down to you know one or two percent of the world's population. Yeah, well, the, I, it's hard to know. I mean, uh, th- things go forward; and they sometimes go back. It seems that China is kind of in the process of taking a step back in terms of their their economy. So it's hard to hard to really know. And when you say step back, is that because you're saying they're not really as uh, open as we thought they might be? And the uh, and the Communist Party is trying to reassert itself and uh, intervene in a lot of uh, they. they uh, not unlike the United States, China has a lot of really rich people, and they're rich because of the export business by and large. And the government sees that, and I think they want to get involved. But getting involved also may kill the goose that lays the golden egg. So I think there's, there's some that's a different issue, but a downside risk. But, but I think that the, the other thing, which uh, you say, are we better off now? And you say, well, uh, I'm X number of years old. My income is uh, such and such uh, compared to. 50 years ago and right. somewhat higher, but uh, it, a lot of people would have been dead. <laughs> you say, right. a typical 75-year-old, how is your income compared to a 75-year-old uh, person 100 years ago? Well, most people were dead before they were 75 100 years ago. So that extra life expectancy is something which is extremely valuable, obviously, but it doesn't enter into the, the calculations. And, and when they created Social Security, they, they didn't envision people living you right. know, into their mid eighties, quite right. frequently, and the problem. I mean, and also the problem. I mean, retirees say every year of extra life expectancy should be spent in retirement. But I think a more reasonable thing is that you should uh, share the increased life expectancy between some extra work and some extra years of retirement, which is not very, uh, very uh, uh, well received by a lot of uh, people close to retirement. Why do you think that is? Well, it's just that uh, health is better. Uh, uh, d- demands of work are lighter. Most people are not engaged in physical work, so working to past 65 is not a impediment for most people. They, they may not want, want to, but that certainly, I think, is an option. And the retirement age is, you know, gradually moving up to 67. From a Social Security standpoint. Yeah, right. Yeah. But again, most people have some options. So again, if, you, if you've saved and done well, you can retire early. If not, you may have to go beyond the, the 67-year-old. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, retirement's a big transition from a lot of standpoints. I don't think people are really fully prepared. I think almost any retiree would tell you there's, there's things about retirement that they really weren't prepared for. Some of them are just mental or emotional. Yeah, it's different too. I I mean, I think if you're a dentist or an obstetrician, uh, going half time or fourth time is probably not a very good option. But if you're a lawyer, uh, it's pretty easy to, kind of have a glide path into retirement. So some people can make the transition without having to go cold turkey. Other people probably don't have that choice. Yeah, and I've even seen uh, creep in where people, high earners, it's impossible for them just knowing that they could earn that yeah. many hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars. To think about going to work half time and earning yeah. half of that, it's kind of like, well, if I could earn that, why wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that's a real, yeah. a real battle that some people I suppose it's probably a small, yeah. a small, you know, it's a There's another thing, too. If, if you're in a, in a position of authority, uh, that authority doesn't uh, transfer necessarily into retirement. So uh, I've been on the service board and off the service board over the last 
decade or two, and uh, I, I find out when, when I'm off the board, my jokes aren't as funny. Bankers don't <laughs> laugh, laugh as much. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I hear, what, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So it's you know. So again, we've been asking people what they wish they either knew before they retired uh, or wish they would have done before they retired. You call us three five six nine three nine seven if you'd like to have any if you have any thoughts on that would like to call in we'd certainly appreciate it um so getting back to medicare this is that time of year where you really want to dust off if you're already in medicare you really want to uh you know if you want to add or change coverage this is your window to do it um you know it, it's really more related to the probably the medicare advantage plan which is part c and the part d which is the prescription drugs so roughly 63.3 million people get the health care coverage through, I don't think I ever really saw that number before, through Medicare. The majority of them, 55 million, are 65 or older, where the others aren't. Yeah, if you, add, if, you that, if you add that Medicaid, uh, you're talking about a huge fraction of the people getting their, their they don't get their health care for the government in the sense of going into a public uh, health facility, but they get it paid for by the government one way or another. So it's a really, really big share of Right. You know, I, it almost seems, Fred, that Medicare, at least from my client standpoint, is viewed as miraculous and what a wonderful jewel. Yeah. Uh, I'm three years away from Medicare. Yeah. Um, heck, I could, I'm, in November, I could go apply for Social Security, Fred. Right. It's a kind of a different feeling. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, uh, it, when you realize, wow, I'm, I'm actually Social Security eligible, <laughs> uh, that gets your attention a yeah. little bit. Also, I think it's a little bit deceptive. I mean, the, the argument now among the progressive is why not uh, basically uh, put everyone into Medicare? It's such a, you know, old people like it a lot. Well, yeah. They like it a lot because it's heavily subsidized. And uh, it's subsidized both with money and also by uh, clout. That, uh, when well, you, when you got 63 million people you're representing. And you go to the doctor, and then there's one price if you're on Medicare, another price if you're not on Medicare. Well, they, if everyone had to go down to that Medicare price, then uh, the system's not going to be viable. So, uh, Yeah, it seems to me you know, that health care is really is a big retirement issue, right? So if people that are 60 that want to retire early, you know, they have to figure out how to deal with the Medicare. And there's, there's some answers to that. Uh, sometimes they're not easy answers, but there are, you know, doesn't mean you can't retire prior to Medicare. But for a lot of people, it's the magic is that Medicare age. Yeah. And it seems to me. And my, it's, it's 65, not, it's not the same as your retirement. Social Security, right. Yeah. It would start at 62. No, I mean, no, but I mean, you, you, the expected age now is clo approaching 67 for Social Security. For full retirement. For, for retirement. Yeah. But you can get medic uh, medica medicare before before that yeah so 65 right. is the the cutoff there and then even though the uh, full retirement age is uh, a year or two beyond that and so for people that are on medicare they got to realize that window's a different window for those people your window's different your window starts three months before your 61st uh, birthday so if you're not on medicare but you're within getting within a few months you want to make sure that you go up and at least you have to sign up for part a and Part B, and there are exceptions to that, but for most people, they're going to sign up for Part A and Part B three months before they turn 65. And at that point, you can decide whether you want to have the Medicare Advantage, which is Part C, and then the prescription drug plan. And there's differences in those plans, and, and it looks like they're going to be, it looks like uh, 
Average monthly premium for Advantage plans will be $19 next year, down from 21-22. That's according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The average 2022 monthly premium for Part D, which is the prescription, will be $33, up from $31.47. Part B premiums have not been finalized yet, but that's anticipated to rise to $158 and change. Oh. So those are kind of the numbers. But again, there. it's very hard to it's very hard to predict. Like this was several years ago. My mother was still alive. But I took her in for a a shingles vaccination, and it was at a drugstore. And we asked how much it how much is it? Well, it might be five hundred dollars. It might yeah. be freeze. It's like you, you pull the handle on the uh, on the slot machine, and it rolls around, and then it tells you how much it is. It turned out it was zero for her, but you didn't know that beforehand. Well, that even our private insurance. My wife, she got her second shingles shingle shot hard to try to say that but and i'm 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 anticipating getting it here shortly but i remember my physician uh dr nathan walker who by the way is an unbelievably great physician uh at least i say so now that i'm healthy but uh he said make sure you check with your insurance first because it can be quite pricey yeah Uh, but then i had someone say paul you don't want to get the shingles yeah uh it's now i want people to be aware that some part d plans again the prescription drug plans are folding and if you're enrolled, if you're enrolled in one of those plans that's being discontinued, your insurance company will probably move you to some other plan. But you really want to go in, and make sure it doesn't have significantly higher premium. You certainly don't want to find that out in January when there's not much you can do about it. And if you pick a, an advantage plan during the fall enrollment, which starts here on October 15th, and realize afterwards it's not a good fit, you can make a change to your coverage between January 1st and March 31st. So there's some flexibility there, but it is the season. So I thought I would at least announce that so people don't forget yeah. all eight people listening here today might no we have quite a few listeners Fred. Uh, anyway. I actually talked at uh, a rotary club this week and several people said they knew my voice so it means someone isn't that is that isn't that funny that you can be in a store and someone I was on an airplane last time I was on an airplane a guy sitting next to me he goes are you Paul Rudy I go yes he goes I could tell by your voice yeah. I'm like wow it's my 15 seconds of fame right. Fred uh, but I sure enjoy having you on here. Um, got a couple minutes to go. Uh, inflation, your your view is it's still probably going to be higher than normal, but transitory. Yeah, I, I guess I've uh, backed off on my degree of certainty there. I think that it is uh, transitory because a lot of these things are bottlenecks that presumably a couple years from now they're going to be uh, uh, things happening in terms of. Uh, supply of errors and things that cars will be made the way they uh, need to be made and so on that it takes some time but i think that uh a lot of the people in, in authority are are saying it may not be as fast as we once thought right. so the federal reserve is still saying that uh, it's not a big long-term problem but maybe may more than just a, a few months to have it uh, shake itself out and again you have we have this unusual situation where you have a tremendous number of of people who aren't working for one reason or another, you have a tremendous demand for things that aren't being fulfilled. So you would hope that eventually those people would be drawn back into the workforce and things would start to to uh, operate as, as they used to. But it may, may be more sluggish than we expect, maybe because of the, the kind of government programs that are making it uh, not necessarily as, uh, as uh, urgent to get back in the workforce. Right, and I think there's still a lot of pent-up savings uh, yeah. of people because that's where a lot of the stimulus checks ended up in the banking system you right. can see it you just have to monitor the yeah. trillions of dollars that are uh, that are in there that weren't in there yeah. a year ago but you would think though that again that eventually ticks off but i think though that uh economists make the, the 
distinction between inflation and prices going up. For example, if it turns out to be really difficult to get people to work in restaurants, uh, the price of restaurant meals are going to go up. It's not going to go up forever. Right. It'll get to some new equilibrium where it's higher and they have more uh, automated services and things of that sort, and then it'll go back to normal. So it's not like to get inflation over the long term, you have to have um, uh, over-demand for, for a very long period of time. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz. You're listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Thanks for the fel- people that uh, called in today and shared their views with this. We're going to be back in two weeks with more of Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.